today on Fuzzy Logic, we're looking at the effect of humans. What effect are we having on this land and how can we stop having an effect and start living here, reducing our footprint? You're going to find out more right here today on Fuzzy Logic. Good morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick, and it's a pleasure to have you with us this morning, joining us here as we broadcast out from the 2XXFM studios right here in Canberra. Now, today we are going to delve into the world of renewable energy and take a look at uh, what effects we're having on this planet and how we might go about reducing them. But before we jump into that, I thought we should uh, have a listen to an expert on the topic. We've got a scientist. We've made some recordings at the Pint of Science, which happened here in Canberra last month. And today we have a recording that was taken at the Duxton from Dr. Will Howard. Now, Dr. Howard is a visiting fellow at the ANU and University of Tasmania and also deputy chair of the Australian National Committee for Antarctic Research. He was talking about a new geological epoch in his talk at Pine of Science. So let's have a listen to Dr. Will Howard. Thanks for that. Um, my son challenged me, wondered if I could actually give a talk in 20 minutes. So I will try. So I want to talk about the Anthropocene Ocean. And I'm going to stand over here. I think that's better. Um, and so I always show, I start with a picture of my favorite iceberg, and Alex King's in the audience somewhere, I think she took this picture, I'm not sure if she took it or I took it, but anyway, I have to go south again to get another photo of another iceberg, so it's been a few, I've been using that same photo for many years. So I want to talk about the idea that humans are having such a profound impact on the earth that we're actually creating a whole new geological epoch starting, well, it's a question of when we started, um, and how it would look. And you have to imagine yourself, not as a geologist now, but imagine yourself as a geologist 10 million years from now, if you're our geologist 10 million years from now. And if you're, if you're drilling into the earth or looking at an outcrop on the earth 10 million years from now, what would you see? What would the mark of human beings be on the planet? And I like to talk about the ocean for two reasons. I happen to love it. I'm a marine scientist myself. Um, but the real reason that I focus on the oceans is that it's the place where most sediments actually accumulate. And in fact, many of the sedimentary rocks that we see uh, in outcrops or road cuts or cliffs, like this one off the coast of Tasmania, these are Permian sediments. They were seabed sediments uh, some 280 or so million years ago in Permian. Uh, here's a photo of the seabed now off California. It looks like kind of a gray, rather nondescript thing with a sea anemone sitting in the middle of it. But that mud is accumulating slowly and steadily and in some thousands of years will be the rock that records uh, the, the geological record. So, and in fact, places like the White Cliffs of Dover, that is just you know, hundreds of meters of marine sediments. That was the bottom of the ocean. Um, 
tens of millions of years ago. So a lot of the record that we see are these marine sediments. And kind of look at a map of the Earth, the way I look at a map of the Earth. I see, I grade, see all the land is grayed out, because people like me don't really care about that. We're concerned about the oceans. Uh, in fact, it would be really convenient for many of us if we could just, for a short period of time, just drain the oceans. It would just be so much easier to do marine geology if we could do that. Uh, we haven't quite found the right hole to drill that will drain out the ocean, but I have a fantasy about that. <laughs> so, so this is a map. All these green things are where there's a lot of sediment. And when you kind of look at it and think about where there's thick piles of sediment, it's either off a river, like right there, east of India, is the Ganges Brahmaputra River, which erodes the Himalayas and just chucks a lot of sediment, mud, and sand, and clay into the ocean, or off Antarctica, uh, where ice sheets are constantly eroding that land and sending sediments into the ocean, uh, or places like the Equatorial Pacific, where actually there's such a high uh, rate of productivity that single-cell algae are constantly producing the water, sinking to the bottom, and that's what's causing a high pileup of sediments. So the ocean is the place to go. The land is, for most part, is always eroding. So any future rocks are actually going to be found in the ocean or what was once ocean. So that's why we look at the ocean. Uh, so we often talk about these places on the Earth where we see something that happened really suddenly. I guess the most famous one um, is what we call the Cretaceous Tertiary Boundary. That's the that's the time when all the dinosaurs went extinct, supposedly, apparently, because an asteroid or a comet hit the Earth. And we can kind of tell that because this iridium, this little spike of iridium in the sediments um, that formed that boundary, and that's thought to have arisen from this extraterrestrial impact hitting the Earth very suddenly, uh, almost as suddenly as that earthquake that um, that hit New Zealand that Creed was talking about. But if you go up to these rocks, you can actually see the spot, and it looks different. Uh, and if you analyze the sediments below that and look at the kind of fossils that are in it, and you look at the kind of fossils that are above it, they would be really different because there were a huge level of extinctions in the marine realm as well as on land. So we often look at these things and say, well, are we doing something similar? Uh, and this boundary, in fact, is so kind of, you can actually see it. This is a, this is a nice uh, Google Earth um, image of the same boundary in Utah. And you can just see, uh, you can actually see it quite nicely. There's a real differentiation between the rocks, uh, sort of below and above. And now they're, they're sideways, so you've got to be going kind of up that way. Uh, but actually, you can actually see it. So it's, it's, that, it's that obvious a boundary. Uh, so are we making such a profound boundary? Well, we're doing a lot of things to the Earth right now. And all these, you know, you can look at all these kind of graphs, and you know, they're all going up um, very suddenly. We're, we're creating, we're putting a lot more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that has impacts on the ocean, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, we're adding more methane, we're making more structures at the sea, more groins and piers, 
at seawalls, and that has an impact uh, as well. We're, um, we're putting more um, nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizers into the ocean, running off from where we farm on land, and that has an impact on the ocean as well. And we're fishing, we're really fishing the oceans out quite a bit. So we're really having a profound impact. But which of those will last and be seen in the future geological record? And these are all the kind of things we do. But these seawalls, you can actually see right there how they alter sand transport along the beach somewhere in, I don't know where that is, someplace in New Jersey, probably. Um, and we also put these pelagic long lines out there into the deep ocean. When I was first, and many other people here were first learning about the ocean, our presumption always was that you got way out there, thousands of kilometers out, it was pristine, it was untouched. By, by people in any way, and it, it, it wasn't true then, uh, and we know it's not true now. So even the deep ocean, even the farthest places, even Antarctica, always, already has the imprint of humans. Uh, so we put a lot of interesting little markers into the place. We, for a long time, we were setting off atomic bombs uh, in the atmosphere, and that actually put some radioactive uh, chemicals, radioactive elements into the atmosphere, into the ocean. For example, uh, carbon-14. Uh, now, that's not going to be a great geological marker for two million years from now, because half of it's gone after about 6,000 years. So that's going to be gone. But there are other longer-lived uh, nuclides, like, uh, like iodine-129. That'll last 16 million years. You might still see that spike. Um, and so we used, in fact, not only uh, can we see that radiocarbon spike in corals, we can see it in marine sediments, uh, we can see it in tree rings, we can see it in a lot of things, uh, but it's actually very convenient for oceanographers to give us a little dye marker to tell how the oceans circulate. So we can see a lot of these things. We're putting more black carbon into the air, we're creating more plastic, and creating more concrete. So we're putting a lot of long-lasting things into the environment, ultimately into the ocean. And you could just you could just put your mind on graphs like this, you know, endlessly um, that show all the things that we're doing. The population is going up, CO2 is going up. All these things are happening to the ocean. And it's just this endless litany. I won't go through all of them. Um, we, we're removing seagrass, we're removing, uh, we're losing coral. We know that in the Great Barrier Reef, especially this year. Uh, we're losing coral in places like the Caribbean as well. And so organisms like the sea urchin or like this bryozoan, uh, which actually makes up big reefs, we have huge reefs south of Australia that people don't often think about because uh, we do focus on the tropical reefs snorkel. So we do have huge reefs southwest that are made up of organisms like these polyazoans. So we're, we're impacting that environment. Now, some people make the point, because we're adding more CO2 to the atmosphere, of course, through the on right now, and our cars, and a lot of other things. We're also adding a lot of methane, which is also a powerful greenhouse gas. Mostly we're doing that through the way we use land and agriculture. Uh, but some people would suggest, Bill Rudman, a geologist at the uh, University of Virginia, suggest that actually we started doing this 
eight or 10,000 years ago when we started agriculture. So he would contend that the Anthropocene actually started um, something like 8,000 years ago because carbon dioxide has gone up, whereas every other time we had a transition from interglacial back into a glacial, it would have already gone down by it. That's a bit of a counterfactual story, but it is quite plausible. But that carbon dioxide record, if you put it on that scale, carbon dioxide now is up at the very top of this slide. And that's happened in the last few, just in the last hundred years, even less. Um, and methane coming up from about 700 parts per billion, how it was in the earlier parts of the pre-industrial era is now just off the page. It's somewhere up by that. Yeah. So we're really profoundly changing the atmosphere. And we know this, you see things like this famous uh, graph of carbon dioxide starting 800,000 years ago. Everybody's seen this in Alvaro's movie uh, of carbon dioxide going up and down. And then all of a sudden going up, it's now just a little bit above form. This, this slide is already a little out of date. Um, and so we really are, even if you look at 800,000 years ago, um, we're a real geological force on the planet. Um, and if you go even farther back in time, and that's one thing about being a geologist, you really don't mind shifting your time frame. It's a bit of a doctor So, you know, I shift from 10,000 years to 10 million years. It's all the same to us. So, um, so that's one thing that takes people a little time to get used to it. In fact, a lot of geologists always put time running from backwards from left to right, especially physicists. <laughs> so if you go back even farther in time, you go back about 30 million years or so, by the end of this century, we will have added enough carbon dioxide to the atmosphere that will be like the atmosphere was about 30 million years ago. And about 30 million years ago was the first time ice caps started to form, 34 million years ago, on Antarctica. So we're actually taking the world back through what was a glaciation, back through what may turn out to be a deglaciation uh, very quickly. So that's, again, that's the scale on which we're doing things to the planet. And I just put little pictures of my favorite critters along the side. There's a little parameter for it. I'll get back to that one. Uh, a minute and a little plant leaf from the Cretaceous, which is actually how one of the ways we tell the CO2 uh, from the past. That's a whole other topic. Um, if we come to the present, like just the last few decades, um, carbon dioxide is going up, and everybody may have seen that record of carbon dioxide from Mount Lower. Anybody see? Um, Everybody knows about Keeling's famous river. Again, it's already out of date. This was made a few years ago by Scott Doney, and we're already above 400. We're up there. As that happens, there's an interesting thing that a good bit of that carbon dioxide is taken up by the ocean, absorbed by the ocean. It actually makes the ocean a little more acidic uh, because carbon dioxide is a weak acid. If you ever watch those medical shows like ER, you know, anybody in here a doctor or a nurse? No? All right. Make sure not to drop here. Okay. The guy's on the gurney. Stops breathing. What's the first thing you call? Oh, 
bipod. Maybe the second thing you call The second thing you call for is bipod. Because you've got, a, you've got a buffer of a person's blood. They stop breathing, their blood pH goes down too much. And you can only tolerate, what can you tolerate as a range of blood pH in humans? About 0.15 or so. Oh no, but you can't tolerate a lot. The ocean has already gone down about 0.15 pH units, which actually is a huge amount. It's about 30% change in acidity. So we're changing that ocean's chemistry, and little critters like this, this little thing is uh, a one-celled alga that floats around in the ocean, and if you're breathing oxygen right now, you can thank it for about every other molecule of oxygen that you breathe. Um, and these little plates are made of calcium carbonate, so they're what buffers, they're part of what buffers this extra CO2. Some of these corals do the same. So we're adding a lot of CO2, we're changing the chemistry of that ocean. Um, and as we go forward in time, very probably, unless we do something quite traumatic, we're gonna keep sending CO2 up and up and up. And this red thing is kind of the path we're on now to hit something like 800 to 900 ppm by the end of the century. And as we do, the ocean takes that up tries to buffer it and the pH goes down. And little shell critters like this pteropod, which is a little snail that floats around the ocean, with this little parameter. But these things are like, in reality, about the size of a grain of sand. There's millions of them. Uh, and they're going to have a hard time making their shells. So the ocean takes up something like 42, or it has taken up about 42% of all the carbon that we've put into the atmosphere. You can thank the ocean very much. For that, however, does have an impact on all the critters that are growing in the ocean, especially ones that are trying to make these shells. Uh, this little algae um, that lives in the Great Barrier Reef, you don't usually see it, but it holds together a lot of the reef. It's going to have a hard time maintaining its shell material under that acidified ocean, even in the Antarctic. And Alex King is here somewhere. She's taken a lot, of, she just came back with a whole lot of video footage of coral reefs in the Antarctic. We didn't really know that until a few years ago. So the way I try to go at this is I can't find an outcrop because my outcrop is down there 3,000 meters deep. Uh, so I have to stick a big old tube into the ocean, into the bottom of the ocean, pull out a plug of sediment. It just looks like this kind of nondescript gray, tan looking stuff. But it's been accumulating, and this is a little echo sounder profile. It's kind of like an ultrasound of the bottom of the ocean. And we can actually look at layers uh, of the sediment as it's been piling up. This, this penetrates about 100 meters into the ocean. In this case, we took about six, five or six meter core. And the nice thing about this is that it's been accumulating slowly. We can go back in time and see what's happened to the ocean in the past. We can do that. Um, off of a few ships, um, French ship, the Marion train, we can deploy some cores off of that, very convenient. Uh, or off the drill ship, the Jody's Resolution, Brad Alphite's here, EKG just came back from being on the Jody's Resolution, and I've been out on it a couple of times. Um, with the Jody's, we can drill into the ocean thousands or hundreds of hundreds thousands of meters into the ocean under the bottom. So we can actually recover we can actually recover that rock and cover the outcrop. 
that's the beauty of coring. We can find the geology before it becomes a road cut. Um, doing that sort of thing, this is the one spruik I'll put in for my own research, um, is that um, Andrew Moy from the Antarctic Division and I and a few other people not only took cores with these little shells, find the thing, again, these little critters that are about the size of a grain of sand, uh, but we captured them, not quite alive, but just recently dead, um, in the ocean. And we actually were able to show that in the modern ocean, they're making thinner, lighter shells. They're already starting this dissolution process. So we were actually able to show that. Um, and this, this particular one got famous uh, on the cover of what's the equivalent of the Rolling Stone first year. <laughs> um, that's, that's a famous forum. Uh, if you drill down even farther, you get to a time about 55 million years ago when we think there was a big release of carbon into the atmosphere, into the ocean. Um, and if you drill down into those sediments, as a friend of mine, Jim as well, did in the South Atlantic, and you can see these cores. So think about these cores are just about a few meters long. And think about time going up that way. And these little curves are how much calcium carbonate there is. You see the pale white stuff, that's very limestone-y kind of stuff. And this brown stuff is where that carbonate just dissolved away. There was so much carbon going into the ocean, it just dissolved that stuff away. And the interesting thing is that you can see that the carbon comes back. And you can see at the top, it gets to be white again. But the time it takes is something like almost 90,000 years. That's how long the ocean takes to recover from this input of carbon. like taking a big tungsten of an upside stomach and having to wait 90,000 years to feel better. Um, and that's what the ocean is doing. That's what the ocean is going to start to do now as we put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, we have a record from the past of how this played out in the past. This is a likely scenario for what future geologists will see. As a result of some of these changes, we can also see uh, that coral cover has been going down, places like the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, big varieties, corals like this, are actually growing um, a bit less quickly and less, and less dense shell material. And so in the future fossil record, you may see less of these corals. So it's very likely to see coral back in the record. And corals are getting hit by two, several different impacts. One is this acidification impact that I talked about, CO2. Uh, the other, oops, can I go back? I can go back. The other is that sea level is going up. Now normally, corals can keep up with that sea level change. Darwin already worked that out a long time ago, that these atolls uh, were forming because as they subsided, the coral grew fast enough to keep up with that relative sea level rise. And you see that happening today in places like the Great Barrier Reef. There's a serious risk that as sea level goes up and accelerates, which it is, uh, these corals might not be able to keep up. We're also hitting them with a lot of other impacts like sediment and nutrient level. So we're really impacting that part of the geological record. The other thing we're doing to the ocean is we're actually making it have less oxygen. That's because we're putting, uh, we're warming it, so it can't mix 
you have a nice warm layer over the top of the ocean, so, so it stays stratified and you can't mix the oxygen down into the ocean. And this is a picture of the low oxygen in the Gulf of Mexico, Louisiana. We're putting a lot of nutrients into the ocean. That's causing algal growth. On one level, that's a good thing. And then algae sink and start to decay and eats up the oxygen. Um, so we're causing these big anoxic zones in the ocean and likely uh, will expand those anoxic zones in the ocean. And you're probably saying, ah, I bet you have a geological analog of that too. And the answer is yes, we do. Um, I'm glad you asked. Um, so in the Cretaceous, below that iridium spike that I talked about, um, we can actually see sediments in the ocean. And again, you, you can see, whoops, use this. You see that nice white limestone sitting sort of on the top of that, and that's well oxygenated uh, sediments under the, under the ocean. But right here is all this black, gooey looking stuff, which may remind you a bit of that, which just was taken off the bottom of Chesapeake Bay in an anoxic zone. Um, so during the Cretaceous, there were huge parts of the ocean, like almost the entire ocean basin, that were so anoxic and so little oxygen that all that was being preserved was very black, very organic, rich material. Uh, it's very likely that that is again what future geology is basically anoxic zones. So the other question is. We often hear about sea level rise. We see pictures like this um, of beaches eroding uh, in places like Narrabeen, uh, Gold Coast. But a lot of the geology that we see is actually created by sea level rising, lapping onto land and creating new space for new sedimentary rocks to be created. So it's interesting to think, are we going to start creating some new geology? sea level rise is high enough. Uh, and if we melted all of Antarctica, we would have sea level rising something like 50 or 60 meters. So we would be flooding big parts uh, of the land. Now, it's bad if you're living there, but if you're a sedimentary rock panel like I am, you might be glad because it's great to have more sedimentary rocks. And we likely will, but it'll take a long, long time uh, because to melt all that ice takes thousands of years. So be concerned about that sea level rise. We just can't Almost there. Almost there. Now, here's another one. And this is a huge, I think this is one of the most interesting things, is that you've all heard a lot about how much plastic we're putting into the ocean. We're putting a lot of plastic into the ocean. Uh, you can see these kind of horrible pictures of all that plastic. But in some places, um, like in Hawaii, it's actually almost forming a kind of rock. So we're actually creating a layer of what's known as plastic conglomerate, or conglomerate made of plastic. And so again, future geologists looking at marine sediments are very likely to see these plastic layers. Um, we're introducing a lot of other things into the ocean or into the environment that have never been there either. Um, and a lot of the organic compounds putting into the environment are things that the Earth has never seen before, and after we're gone, we'll probably not see again. Uh, these are things like PCBs uh, that were created to be ballast 
or electrical uh, transformers are designed to be really stable compounds, stable under high voltage, under high heat, uh, and they've succeeded. They are very stable, and they don't decay away. So, and this is just spikes of these kind of compounds uh, in some European lakes, but we also see them in marines that are uh, as well. So we're creating a layer of that stuff. And I guess the final thing that we're doing, uh, and it brings us back to the way geologists define all the geological epics, the Permian and the Cretaceous, uh, and all the ones that you learned about, forgot about in high school geology class, and we took a high school geology class. All those layers, uh, all those epics were defined on the basis of what was living in them. So you know, we know there's a layer where we have dinosaurs and then none. Uh, this is the Permian-Triassic boundary when there was a huge extinction of marine organisms uh, in the ocean. Many of them went extinct at that time. These are some bryozoans from Tasmania. Most of them went extinct not long after this little bit of uh, this little bit of seabed was laid down. Um, and so I think the final thing to think about is how much extinction we're causing in the ocean. And I think that's going to be the, ultimately that would be the defining uh, mark of the intimacy how much uh, how many fossils are missing after after humans have gone. Um, so I think there's I think there's a uh, there's a good case for saying we're creating a new uh, geological epoch of all the things that I've talked about. But I also should point out that a lot of these processes are really, really long lasting. They won't play out immediately. It won't be a spike rather it'll be something that starts now and it'll be tens of thousands, maybe millions of years of this. Uh, so it could be a very well defined. And I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks for that. Um, and that was Dr. Will Howard there, uh, just sharing his thoughts on uh, the new geological epoch. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on 2XX FM. That was Mustard Courage there with Never Been Better Before. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM, your science on a Sunday. Broderick here in the studio with Rod this morning. Good morning, Rod. Uh, good morning, Broderick, and uh, what, a gloomy, what a gloomy topic. But as you said in your introduction... What are we going to do about it? That's right. We've heard about the effect that uh, humans are having on the Earth. We're in, in, in heading into a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene, where we can actually see the effects of humans. So how are we going to cut down those effects is the big question that we have to ask because it's really not sustainable if we keep going the way that we are. Well, th that's right, um, Broderick. I, I am by nature a, a problem solver, and I... I can't bear to look at a problem like this and just say we're, we're screwed, we're going to sit down and we're going to fall into despair, we're going to do nothing. But we aren't completely helpless. We're not all powerful, but there are things that we can do. Now, we've just had the Finkel review, which is all in the news right now. And there are the three main points of that, uh, Broderick. What, what were they? That's right. Well, Finkel was reviewing the, the national electricity market after the uh, blackouts through South Australia. And 
he was he made um he had four outcomes from it that uh, he saw which was uh, increased security uh, future reliability uh, rewarding consumers and lower emissions and I, I find these four uh, outcomes that he's looking at really interesting because uh, Finkel is a very smart man he's a, he's a scientist and a businessman all at the same time and and these outcomes that he's listed really bring both sides of the political spectrum together uh, with with both the uh, lower emissions the good environmental story but also the economics around it too and security for the population and it's almost an impossible expectation heaped upon him. He seems to be have been built almost as a messiah coming in to, to solve this problem. And I'm sure he, from what I know of him, I've heard him uh, on the radio, he is an impressive person. And uh, I've got a, a lot of faith in his ability. But he's uh, he's pragmatic. He's very pragmatic, isn't he? Yeah, oh, that's right. He he knows that a solution is needed, and if we if we keep going down the path that we were going down, it wasn't going to happen because, for various political reasons, much more so than any scientific ones, the the two sides weren't going to come together, uh, and so he's sort of put together these four outcomes along with um, three pillars which will underpin these outcomes which are an orderly transition into uh, a cl into clean energy so that means making a slower phase uh, phasing out of the coal-fired power, power stations and uh, all, along with that better system planning and stronger governance around it too so we can actually have some control but he, he's actually um, technology neutral isn't he I don't think he says specifically that coal is is not um, should not be part of our mix no, but he is setting a clean energy target or a, a CET, um, which is the big acronym to come out of this. You have to have an acronym with all these things, of course. Uh, so CET is the clean energy target that's coming out of the Finkel Review, and it's forcing electricity companies to source as much power as possible as they can from clean technology, like renewables or also uh, so-called efficient gas. Um, and so it's it's aiming to stimulate and incentivise uh power companies to go for that clean energy so it's a carrot rather than a stick approach which i think is a a good way of of looking at it um so yeah and and he's also looking at other things that uh, south australia is heading towards uh, after their big blackout such as battery storage and backout generation uh, backup generation, not blackout generation, that's the opposite of what we want, backup generation uh, to avoid a uh, South Australia-type situation in the future. Mm. Um, and interesting, you, you say that um, the idea is to motivate rather than the carrot rather than the stick. So of the four objectives, the climate change carbon dioxide reduction is the fourth one. Now, Roderick, you were saying off-air that... Uh, what, what, what we're doing here is, or what Finkel is doing here, is he's playing to people's motivation. People might care about a reliable, cheap, uh, viable electricity supply, but climate change, global warming is a bit 
intangible. It's a bit abstract. That's right. It is a very intangible thing. I mean, we don't often see the effects, and, and sometimes even when we do, we find them unbelievable. Uh, I actually went to a, a talk on the weekend at the Sapphire Coast Marine Science Forum uh, that they had down there, and one of the speakers there was talking about coral bleaching events that had occurred on the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, and it was a really interesting talk showing how that it was linked to the... Um, increase in temperature in the waters. So when the waters were above average temperatures for too many days, it was causing bleaching. And uh, in the different areas of the reef, it actually had different levels of bleaching. And one of the biggest uh, areas of note is the tourist areas, the places where people actually go out and see the reef. And so in uh, the 2014-15 uh, season when they, they tested over that summer, they saw some bleaching in the touristy areas around Cairns and south from there, uh, but then the reef recovered. And then in the following summer, in 1516, uh, I, now I could be off one in my years here, so please forgive me if I am, but in the, in the following summer, uh, they saw a recovery of the reef, and in fact there was very little bleaching down there, and it fully recovered. But there was 98% uh, bleaching further north of Cairns. But it's the regions that we don't see because that's not where the tourists well, go. Um, Broderick, this is a really good example of intangible because here I am in Canberra, here we are sitting in this studio, and there's this theoretical thing called the Great Barrier Reef. I, I have visited it a couple of times, but it's an abstract concept right now. I can't see it, I can't feel it, I can't touch it. So all I have to go on here is somebody telling me, like you just now, or the media reports, the coral has been bleached. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a really terrible thing, but it's, it's a step removed from me, so I'm not experiencing that directly. That's right, and I, I guess no one really does experience that. The effects of the bleaching of, of the coral reef are going to be long long term effects that eventually start having a flow on to to the the simple human population but i mean underwater we're already seeing big changes happening there as you know, areas are dying off and, and it's going to be a struggle to regenerate them well uh, listeners we can uh, we can do this now in the studio now we can demonstrate this principle i've got a sharp knife in my hand and i'm going to poke broderick in the hand with it ow ow <laughs> Okay, now to me, I could see Broderick uh, wincing, and I'll, 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 can you get a band-aid, yeah. please? <laughs> I'll put something on it. Uh, now, Broderick, I, I've seen it firsthand, what I've just done to Broderick's hand. Broderick, you're feeling it. Does it hurt? Yes, it does. Now, dear listener, you are uh, at least one or two steps removed from that, so for you, it is a completely theoretical concept that Broderick now is uh, in need of an ambulance quick... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna mop up the studio when we finish this yes. this broadcast. <laughs> but now, somebody who did go to have a first-hand look at the reef was our redoubtable politician Pauline Hanson. Oh, gosh. What happened, Broderick? Well, it, I mean, it's interesting. I love the fact that she's in the news at the moment for something else entirely, but let's bring her back to her time in the reef because she went swimming in the reef and saw magnificent colours on the corals, which is great. Wonderful, Pauline. But the interesting thing I heard from the scientists down there was they were saying that what she was actually seeing was probably the last-ditch efforts of those corals to maintain life before they go into a bleaching phase. So while well, there were wonderful corals in the, uh, wonderful colours in the area she was swimming, and also she was swimming down south where there was less bleaching in general. 
the 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 thing that she was seeing was corals that were kind of in their death uh, death throes, you know, just uh, about to to head out. Uh, so she really wasn't uh, giving us any indication of that, of of what the reef reef health is really like. Well, her. her objective really was to promote herself in, in a media stunt and to reinforce the views of herself and those who don't think that climate change is a real is a real thing well and the other thing she's also playing to is she's a, a queenslander through and through and and the queensland tourism industry is quite worried about what they're going to lose from this and again i, I suppose in some ways we can relate this back to the finkel report where he's brought the economic benefits of having clean energy over to to also join together with the environmental benefits and i think that's the way we have to look in uh, communicating things like coral reef bleaching which was actually done really badly and I've heard scientists admit that the communication of that was done uh, really poorly because it put all the tourism operators offside immediately and so they came out and denied that there was any bleaching occurring because of course any reports like that you see the tourism start to disappear so I think it's something that we have to think about when we start communicating these facts around uh, any big change and especially things like climate climate change here where what we say does affect other people we need to think about what those effects are yeah, yeah. I, I, what you're pointing to um, Roderick is the science is easy people are hard <laughs> I, I definitely agree with that yes people people are hard and you've got to understand the politics so what the Finkel review does it's very politically pragmatic now we could say, and I think indications are that the objectives of the review aren't really as strong as they should be. If we're going to meet our requirements to to reduce the impact of global warming, to, to, to try to hold it below one and a half degrees, it's all, an almost an impossible task. But what happened with the Greens party? Uh, they rejected the uh, the first carbon trading scheme and uh, and as a result under the howard government that was and as a result now we have none mm. and the one under the gillard government got got trashed by tony abbott and uh, so we now have nothing so the the quote that comes to mind is the the best is the enemy of the good you want yep. the best you you get nothing mm. uh, if you prepare to accept a compromise and I, I hate to say this because compromise maybe is not enough but yeah I mean sometimes it feels as though a compromise is is compromise is a dirty word uh, because no one no one really wins but I think in this case uh, politically uh, both sides of the the house will benefit from going towards this uh, you know Malcolm Turnbull will finally be able to have some sort of uh, clean energy policy which has plagued him because that was something that he was quite big on before he became uh, leader of or prime minister uh, and had to actually take some action there and, and mollify his own inner party politics. Um, but, yeah, so it'll give him some action there and it'll also give the Labor Party some action to show that something's happening in terms of the environment. So I think it'll benefit both of them if they work together for this. Uh, well, I have a little political story. I think maybe we should break to a song uh, because we are full flight here on Fuzzy Logic 2XX. Don't forget you can pick us up on Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com. We're on Twitter and that Facebook thing. <laughs> and, of course, we have our column in the Canberra Times for our regular science 
question. Yeah, that's right, Rod. Well, let's keep with the bluegrass theme we've ha- we've been having this morning with a bit more mustard courage. This is same old thing again. I think sometimes the climate change debate feels a bit like that. The same old thing again. We've gone through this, haven't we? Surely we've established it by now. Uh, that was Mustard Courage there with the same old thing again. I thought that was an appropriate song. Today, here on Fuzzy Logic, with Broderick and Rod in the studio, we are talking about renewable energy. And before the song, we were talking about uh, the chief scientist's uh, Finkel review around setting clean energy targets. And so we're going to move away from the politics now into the more practical solutions. And I know, Rod, uh, you've been putting together a book at the moment called Renewing Australia, slowly taking shape as you talk to a variety of people around the country. And in writing this book, you were telling me that you've discovered a new word recently. What's, uh, what's, what's this word? Uh, it's the F word, brother. The F word. The F word. Well, look, I, I know things are a bit hopeless at times, but I don't think we need to bring the F word into it. <laughs> All right, here, here it is. It's it's fungible. Fungible. Now, Hold on. It, it sounds like a kind of uh, mushroom or something. You know, you'd have it your on your food. Or, or it sounds like a. Good, it's uh, actually a term from economics. Ah, okay. So, uh, how, come on, spell it for me. F U N G I B L E. Okay. I think. All right. You're, it's your word. <laughs> Fungible. What it Fungible. means is that uh, a product is is uh, exchangeable, swappable. It's it's uh, homogenous. So if you were to get a glass of water from here and, or a glass of water from there, they'd be pretty much the same glass of water within within reason. Okay, or salt. Yeah. Okay, you can have sea salt, blah blah blah. But salt is basically salt. Yeah. Now one electron looks pretty much the same as another electron, right? And we, you know, here in the studio, we've got the lights going, we've got the recording gear, etc., etc. And you'd say, well, electricity supply is a fungible product. But what I'm learning in doing this book is that uh, actually it's not as simple as that. So when you plug into the PowerPoint and nothing comes out, then that, that's fail from your point of view. And what happened in South Australia with the blackouts down there is an example. But uh, what it means is that if you're supplying electricity to the, to the grid, there's a bunch of the characteristics you've got to have that make it a good supply. So it's not just about pumping electrons out the power point, right? Uh, so there's more around it than just the uh, the actual product. It's it's how it gets there and all it's that sort of delivered. thing. Yeah. And, and the Finkel Review touches on, on these sorts of things. So we won't spend too long, but I'm not a technical expert too. I have to qualify this, but I'm going to throw in some, some more, more complicated words. So this one is dispatchable. <laughs> the first time I heard that, I thought uh, WTF. <laughs> dispatchable just means it's available when you need it. Right. So if you say they're like a, a coal-fired power station, they flick the switch on some transformer on some network somewhere and the power suddenly pumps through. And so if you're running a wind turbine and the wind isn't blowing, then it's not dispatchable. Yep, that it's makes sense. It's got to be available. Yes, okay? that makes sense. Uh, and it's got to be available when you need it, mm. which is why the grid needs storage built into it. Yeah, that's right, because that is one of the issues with a lot of these renewable energies, the clean energies that we're looking at, is they're not necessarily 24-hour products. They're intermittent. Mm. That's right. And that probably leads into the next word, which is peak. And so peak load. Now, 
when I rode my um, my virtue is shining because I rode my bicycle to the studio today, but the roads were empty. Like Northbourne Avenue, hardly a car on it, uh, except you know a couple of hundred metres up. But we have to build this big ass road system through Canberra just to carry enough cars for the peak hour. Mm. And what that means is you, you've got to build a much bigger system, much more expensive system, uh, and when it's only getting used at a, at a fraction of its capacity. Yeah, well, that's, that's an interesting thing. I spent some time in the Indigenous communities for work, uh, various periods of a couple of weeks out there. And I remember when I first arrived, I was very wary about my electricity usage because we were out in the middle of nowhere, you know, hundreds of kilometres from the nearest towns, small community on their own. And then eventually I spoke to one of the teachers about it and they said, oh, no, don't be stupid. Our generator is never working to capacity. We don't reach our peak here. So switch on all the lights, it's fine, because it's just processing anyway and that energy just disappears off if it's not used. Uh, so <laughs> that's kind what, of what that kind of points to is, and, and, and this, is, this is the theme I, think I find deeply interesting, and that is our society, our civilization, our technology is so fantastically sophisticated that we can just take it for granted so you want to boil your kettle in the morning and you plug your, your kettle into the powerpoint and it magically appears what you don't see is a vast amount of whirring and clunking that goes on behind the scenes to make that possible mm. now it's a wonderful thing it's a wonderful thing because i had my coffee this morning you know i plug the kettle in and away we go but what it means is and it's like our reef it's invisible to us and we take it for granted and any time we notice it is when it fails so the poor people in South Australia are the wearing the brunt and there are rising electricity prices right now are the failure of 10 years 10 years gross negligence culpable negligence mm. to manage that and to plan the transition of our electricity system and uh, I can't think of any word stronger in incompetence because this has been coming for a long while and it's all been ignored. And now we have people in South Australia and we have our own prices going up because we're not managing the transition. And God help us, we hope the Finkel Review will be a, a, a signpost to help us. Yeah, that's right. He really has tried to slow down that transition a little bit so we can actually get the right systems in place uh, so we don't end up with this lack of supply um, as we go through. Because when the whirring and clunking stops whirring and clunking, then we, then we noticed. Yes. Uh, another word is a thing called inertia. And my understanding of that term is it relates to how long it takes you to ramp up supply. Uh, okay. And how long it goes when when the the, the uh, as you sweep, as you ramp it down, okay. So a a wind farm will sort of ramp up quickly as the wind comes on and ramp down quickly when the wind dies. Yeah. But a coal-fired power station has a really really long lead time, and then it's got a lot of embodied heat in the boilers and everything, and it takes up it's got a long long time to slow down. Yeah. So these are all the things that we have to um, sort of look at uh, as we make our way into this new area of energy. That's right. There's some of the things that we need out of a, um, uh, a reliable, stable supply. Now, one thing that we have in our back pocket is when money plays, people dance. <laughs> yes. 
the money tube plays we, we dance and so what what's really made a, a vast difference now is the economics have changed drastically uh, coal is no longer viable nobody is going to build a coal-fired power station so we've got coal per, coal burners in the in the federal government who are complaining about the Finkel review don't worry about them because no one's going to be able to afford another coal-fired power station same goes for nuclear energy nuclear energy is vastly expensive and uh, I don't think we can we will ever see a nuclear power plant built in Australia unless it's maybe a research one like the one we have at um, Anstow over in uh, Wuthering Heights, Lucas. Lucas Heights. Heights. There we are. That's I was going to say Wuthering. <laughs> Hopefully, it's not Wuthering too much <laughs> over there. Yeah, no, it, it is a very true thing that uh, this is the sort of transition we have to make through, yeah. through to that. So there we go. Well, look, twelve o'clock's crept up far too quickly here, Rod. Uh, and we're going to have to uh, wrap this up, unfortunately. Uh, but it's been uh, really interesting uh, talking about these renewables with you. And I know uh, as you keep doing your research around the book, Renewing Australia, we'll certainly hear more from, about that from you, I'm sure. Well, I just want to say that the, my overarching dream, dare I say, in the book is that uh, we, we've talked about the Anthropocene, we've talked about how difficult it is to make the transition to a sustainable electricity supply to cut our emissions and so on. I'm chasing those stories of people who are actually making a difference, the people who make you think, wow, look what this person's done, that is amazing, and, and that will inspire to maybe do something the same. Yeah. So if any of our listeners know anyone who's making a difference out there, Rod, how can they get in touch with you? Yes, please. Yes, please. And through the Fuzzy Logic Facebook or Twitter, or uh, you can get to me through uh, our Ask Fuzzy column, askfuzzy at zoho.com. Awesome. So I can send you an email or, yes, connect through any of our social medias, and uh, that would be great to hear from you. They could be the big or the little stories, interesting, uh, just something that, that has that little spark. Yeah, definitely, because it's those sparks that are going to start uh, lighting the fires of change, I'm sure. Well, it, 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 is, it is doable. It is doable. We just have to put our mind to it. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for sharing, Rod, uh, and thank you, listeners, for joining us here today for another episode of Fuzzy Logic. Uh, if you want to listen again, you can always find us on the podcast, fuzzylogic on 2xx.podbean.com, or you can uh, download from iTunes. You can find us on there. Just search for Fuzzy Logic Science Show. 